You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. My philosophy had changed to we should ignore the person and we should go after the behavior. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Jonathan Hunt from GitLab. He's going to share his perspective of dealing with bad actors... Ignore them. All right, Joe, we've got some interesting stories to share this week. I am going to kick things off for us. My story comes from the Baltimore Sun, our hometown newspaper, yes. <laughs> and, uh, written by Justin Fenton, who um, does a lot of good work over there at the Sun. I have to say this is a horrific story. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. just awful. Uh, so be warned. Um, the story I'm, I'm going to to read a lot from the article here because the details are deep and, and important. So there's a gentleman named Ahmad Kazelbach, 26 year old man, and he has been convicted of harassing a former girlfriend of his and also taking advantage of the justice system in order to do so. Yeah, in the process. Yeah, and in fact, uh, his sentence, the, the judge in the case gave him a sentence that was longer than the recommended sentencing guidelines because of how just blatant and, and shameless this gentleman's um, uh, gentleman? abuse. <laughs> by, by gentleman, I mean not a gentleman. Right. Uh, his abuse of the... The system was so. This guy Kasselbach, who uh, he's he's pled guilty to uh, cyber stalking and improper access of a computer. When he and his former girlfriend broke up, he went in and got control of several of her social media accounts. He had her email contact information. He also had uh, still had access to the apartment that they had uh, shared together. He, he was still on the lease of that apartment. Evidently, he went in and ransacked it and took some items. Huh. Um, he altered her personal health care information. He interfered with her work, which, according to this story, nearly cost her her job. That's awful. Um, it's awful. But at some point back in uh, September of 2016, she received a text from a Florida-based number, and it said, prepare yourself for what's coming. The last three months were just the beginning. I have bigger plans for you. I love how easily manipulated you can be. Hmm. And so Kasselbach, he filed a domestic violence protective order against his former girlfriend, right. saying that he had received violent threats from her via text message and social media and that she had physically abused him as well. Uh-huh. And he had the evidence for that on his device. And a judge granted a temporary protective order. Now, the woman, the, the ex-girlfriend, she thought, well, I, I didn't do any of this, so they can't prove any of this. I didn't do it. Right. So a hearing was scheduled on the protective order. He filed an application for a statement of charges against her. And I have to say, these, these are the times when I wish uh, we had Ben Yellen on the line so he, right. could, just, he could explain <laughs> what all these legal 
terms are, but so yeah, just, that will follow along. Very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> he claimed that uh, she continued to harass him and threaten him in violation of the temporary order, and so an arrest warrant was issued for her. Huh. He called the uh, police over the next couple of days, showed police officers threatening text messages that he said she'd sent him. Two more arrest warrants were issued. He called again a few days after. This resulted in another warrant. So now we're um, up to four warrants. Right. The hearing right. on the protective order was scheduled. Uh, she showed up. She categorically denied committing any of the conduct, but the judge issued a final protective order requiring her to stay away from him. And she was arrested on these warrants, uh, was served with, with all of the cases. She spent two nights in jail. Huh. Again, he reported more harassing texts from her, but here's where things start to not go his way. He reported more harassing texts, but this woman was in jail. She was in jail when the texts were allegedly sent, so she could not have sent them. Really? And the police looked up the cell phone records and they showed no activity between their phones. He continued to report threats from the woman. The police continued to issue charges. Uh, it's worth mentioning, uh, by the way, over this period of time, he had gotten married to another woman. Huh. So the uh, assistant uh, U.S. attorney pointed out, this is not a crime committed in the heat of passion. This was deliberate. He is planning this out. This is long running, too. Yes. Right. So generally, yes. when you think of a crime committed in the in the heat of passion, you think of something that's done and then is over with. But this is a long running campaign of misinformation that this guy ran against his ex girlfriend. Right. Right. So uh, a prosecutor for the state's attorney's office for Anne Arundel County, which is uh, where this was all taking place, asked for permission to download data from his iPhone and connected with the investigation. And he said he would only allow a limited search. And mm. because of that, they dismissed charges against his former girlfriend. Ah, um, good. He, he continued to file charges against her. And he switched, uh, <laughs> he switched to authorities in Baltimore County, a neighboring county, because mm. evidently he was not satisfied with the police um, and justice system in Anne Arundel County. Uh, Baltimore County Police investigated the claims. They said that uh, there was very little on his phone. He claimed that he was just uh, kept his phone tidy, didn't like to keep a lot of things on it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the meantime, it seems as though the police were on the trail here. Yeah, but it says here that this woman was arrested for a second time and forced to wear an ankle bracelet. Right. That's so, terrible. It is absolutely terrible. So eventually, uh, out of frustration, this woman who, let's remember here, has done nothing wrong. Right. right? Uh, she got some help from her family. They hired a lawyer and the lawyer contacted the FBI because, in response to this ongoing harassment. Uh, and the FBI got involved. Uh, they took up the case and eventually they arrested him in January of 2019. He admitted to hacking her accounts. And he has been uh, sentenced to uh, four years in, in jail for uh, what he did to her. Yeah, good. I don't think that's long enough. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really don't think that's long enough. There's a quote in the, from the judge that sentences him in here saying that he weaponized the justice system. Yeah. That's a terrible act. The last thing anybody needs to be is under the inspection of the justice system for something they didn't do. That mm -hmm. can really wreck your life. Just getting into that system is a terrible occurrence in your life. Right. And this guy drug his girlfriend into that deliberately. Yeah. I also think about how 
when weighing the evidence here, because on initially you have kind of a he said, she said, right? Right. Uh, I say that this woman is harassing me. She says I'm not. Well, if that's all it was, then it would probably not go any farther than that. But because this guy had the ability to hack her accounts and to create these text messages that appeared to come from her, well, now the police have evidence against her. And, and so her denials fall on deaf ears because... Here's the evidence. It's on his phone. Here are the text messages. Right. And uh, I have to say, I mean, that's kind of chilling, don't you think? I, I do. I think it's I think it's very chilling. I think this is terrible. And it's not something that's terribly difficult to do. The only thing that's going to stop people from doing this is these harsh sentences. Uh, this guy is going to spend four years in a federal prison. There is no parole in the federal prison. That was eliminated back in the 80s, I think. I don't know. I think this guy might have gotten off easy considering the magnitude of what he did. I mean, think of the resources he wasted and think of the time he cost this woman and the expenses. This woman had to hire a lawyer. That's not cheap, you know, right. and right. fortunately she was able to do that. If she was not able to do that, what would the outcome have been? That lawyer is the one that got the FBI involved. Who knows what would have happened if, if she did, couldn't afford a lawyer? Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to just uh, emphasize here that uh, by, by making these suggestions, I'm not uh, blaming the victim. I'm, I'm, that I wonder, had she had multi-factor authentication on some of these accounts, could that, that have, have made it more difficult? Yeah. Right, it, th- right. That's just another reason for everybody to use multi-factor authentication. Uh, but yeah. he, he could have set up fake accounts as well, and it looks like he did that to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and no authentication is going to prevent that. Right. I guess ultimately she trusted him. You know, they had a relationship. They had an intimate relationship. She trusted him. She shared certain information. He took advantage of that trust. He abused that trust mm-hmm. and to great effect. And she suffered because of it. But ultimately it looks like justice was served here. So yeah, that's good. I agree. All right. Well, that is my story this week. Joe, what do you have for us? Well, Dave, it's a switcheroo because you're doing the dark story and I'm doing one that's not so dark. <laughs> okay. My story comes from Sudeep Singh and Kavalya Kursail. I hope I'm saying Kursail's name correctly. If I'm not, I apologize in advance. They both work at Zscaler. Hmm. Um, Dave, do you get emails that notify you of a voicemail? I do. Yes. I do not. Okay. I, I don't get them and I probably should get them. Or maybe there's something I haven't set up where uh, in in our system at Hopkins where uh, I haven't I just haven't set up the system to do that. Pretty and common that, thing, though. Yeah, it is a common thing. Zscaler has identified a phishing campaign that impersonates this type of email, and this is nothing new. But they're saying it's on the rise. And do you know why it's on the rise? Why Why would you think it's on the rise? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, is it related to folks working from home? I would believe that's exactly right. Hmm. Because I have to call in and check my voicemail. I, I don't oh. get the email. I'm not sitting at my desk where that little red light comes on every day right. anymore. <laughs> right, right? right. I'm sitting right. at my home. I don't have any idea if that little red light's on or off. Oh, uh, so, that's bliss. Yeah, Right, it is. <laughs> <laughs> One of the many benefits of working from home. <laughs> right, I, right. I can now ignore another form of technology because it's not a big red light sitting in my face. But if you get these emails and you click on a link, you will be uh, redirected to a credential harvesting page. Uh, Mm. They are targeting enterprises, which is interesting. Presumably, they're either looking for IP to steal or possibly some ransomware targets. Hmm. Um, They're using a lot of of JavaScript on different hosts and things of that nature that are technical that I'm not going to get into. There's a lot of technical information in the article. If you want to look at that, there's going to be a link in the show notes. But there are some interesting techniques that they're using to protect themselves. First, these fishers are using a CAPTCHA service from Google 
to keep web crawlers from going into their site and flagging it as malicious. So one of the things that is always going on is these web browsers will warn you if a site is dangerous. And the way they know that is they've looked at the site and analyzed it beforehand, right? There's, right. there's a service out there that does that. And if that service can't get in to analyze the, the website and see that it's malicious, then they can't warn you about it. Yeah, can't, can't tell you either way. Right. And the CAPTCHA service is there to provide protection for legitimate web services that don't want to be abused, right? So here's another case of a tool being used for evil. And then the CAPTCHAs are, you know, click on every every part of this image that shows a, a chimney or yeah, you know, yeah. a traffic light or something like that. They're awful. Yeah. I really yeah. hate them. I get them frequently because I'm, I'm usually on a VPN, and that's one okay. of the key factors that uh, will make you get a CAPTCHA if you're coming out of a VPN node. Huh. They found one page that on the first attempt always gives a password incorrect message. So even if you enter your, well, I mean, it doesn't matter what you enter, you're going to get a password incorrect, which they think makes the user slow down and enter their password more cautiously next time. Hmm. So these guys are looking to increase the quality of the data they steal, hmm. which, which I think is interesting. <laughs> right. <laughs> Another thing they're doing is they've registered a domain called secure.ciscovoicemail.cf. Mm. That's a top-level domain for the Central African Republic, and we've seen this before as well, where uh, people have registered the top-level domains from countries that look similar to other top-level domains. Mm -hmm. uh, they're also abusing the XYZ top-level domain. Dave, do you remember the good old days when there was only seven top-level domains and <laughs> the country codes? I mean, I probably don't have specific memories of that, but yes, I do remember a simpler time of the internet for sure. Right. You know how many domain top-level domains there are now? Oh my goodness. I can't, I can't guess. There's over a thousand, over wow. a thousand top-level domains. And every one of those top-level domains, and a top-level domain for the less technical among us is the very end of a web address or an email address, the .com, .edu, or dot, in this case, CF, now .xyz. They have, there are thousands of these. And within that top-level domain, you can register names for just about anything. And yeah. these guys in the Central African Republic domain have registered ciscovoicemail.cf, mm -hmm. which is a great way to spoof the Cisco voicemail client. Yeah, so many of these voicemail systems are run on Cisco hardware. Right. So really the only protection here is vigilance. If you have one of these systems where you can remotely access your voicemail, bookmark that and use the bookmark. Don't click on the link in the email that's sent to you. And then you can access your voicemail directly. Most of the systems I'm familiar with these days, they include the voicemail in the email. You get a little audio file right, right there in the email, so you don't even have to leave your email client to listen to the message. Right. Now, that's a great, a great solution. If you get one of these and it doesn't include the audio file, that could be a tip-off that okay. it's not legit. Yeah, that's <laughs> most... That's that's Most a great do tip these days. Yeah. So yeah. people should just be aware that people are actually increasing the targeting of credential harvesting using these voicemail impersonation phishing attacks. Yeah. All right. Well, it's an interesting one as well. It is time to move on to our catch of the day. Joe, you found our catch of the day this week. Why don't you describe it uh, to us? I did. It comes from a Reddit user, Okami Life. 
And it's an exchange on some messaging client. I'm not sure what it is, but it's mm-hmm. it's obviously starting off as a scam. And mm-hmm. uh, Okami Life realizes this immediately and uh, starts having a good time with the scammer. Dave, why don't you be the scammer, and I will play the part of the intended scam E. All right, very good. Uh, here we go. Good day. I hope you're doing great. I'm Braxton Gilbert, and I'm the Director of Human Resources of CGI Global Incorporated. I'm contacting you in the regard of your resume posted. Let me know if you're interested. Totally. Tell me more, Brandon. Opening positions. Data entry, administrative assistant, IT manager, accounting manager, receptionist, customer service, project manager, front desk, etc. Which do you best fit in? Pays $50.65 per hour and $25 during training hours. I think a phone interview would be more appropriate, Bernard. I qualify for all those positions and think they all fit me to some extent. Sound good. Your resume was reviewed by the Human Resources Department and you were selected for an online interview. The interview will be conducted via online. That way, it's faster. I believe your Gmail account is still intact. I'm happy to hear it, Bridget. Tell them to call my phone number and we can chat it up. Good. I need you to get online now and download a Google Hangout app using your email and add up the hiring manager, Mr. Martin Bruce. He will be online waiting on you to tell you more about the job offer. Wish you the best of luck in your interview. I don't have Google Handouts. I want to speak on the phone. I'm missing eight fingers and talking is easier. Online interview is an online research method in which participants are asked a question about a position aided by the use of computer-mediated communication tools, such as instant messaging, email, or video chat technology. But what are we doing now? I see what you're saying, Bolton, but will it be a video chat? I just got my face did, and I need to see if it's employer approved. You got to work with me. Good. I need you to get online now and download a Google Hangout app using your email and add up the hiring manager, Mr. Martin Bruce. He will be online waiting on you to tell you more about the job offer. Wish you best of luck in your interview. You sound hella cute, B-Pop. How about we forget the job interview and I interview you for the position of being the new guy I keep in my basement. The one I have now is getting old. What? And that's where the conversation ended. Uh, surprise, surprise. Yeah, too much fun. All right. Well, uh, pretty clear what's going on here, right, Joe? Yeah, it's probably the prelude to a check floating scam where these guys are going to say, hey, great, you got the job. And then they're going to say, uh, we're going to send you a check. And as soon as you get the check, you're you're to spend money at this website on this thing. And then, of course, the check will bounce and the person's going to be out the money that they spent. Right. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. Uh, thanks to uh, that Reddit user, Ukami Life, for posting that and sharing it. Uh, it's our pleasure to read it. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Jonathan Hunt from GitLab, and uh, he shared some of his perspective of dealing with bad actors. Uh, he thinks it's not so much uh, uh, who they are, it's what they're up to that needs to uh, attract your attention. Here's my conversation with Jonathan Hunt. For probably uh, several years in my career, I noticed that the operational teams I would lead would attack the bad actors, uh, we, whether it was through trying to block IP addresses, whether it was just trying to block the specific activity that they were trying to do or exploit, the scans they were running, 
And then we would continue to see the same behavior over and over. And whether it came from different IP addresses, whether it seemed to come from different types of profiles, whether it came from different areas within the service itself or the application itself. And, and we quickly realized that that's, that's a losing battle. Like you're not going to win playing defense. <laughs> and so it was at that time, my philosophy had changed to we should ignore the person. And we should go after the behavior. We should go after the activity. We should be looking at what it is that they're trying to do, what you know, the controls are trying to circumvent, the types of attacks that they're using, the areas of the application that they're looking to expose. And then how can we address the problem? How can we get to the root of the problem and address that behavior within the product or service that we're offering? Well, can you give me some uh, specific examples of how this would play out? A good example is we, especially here at GitLab, we run a a complete DevOps lifecycle tool. Part of that is source code repositories. Within the source code repositories, we have had actors that have exploited the platform itself or service itself for crypto mining practices. So, of course, we could go after and start kicking off each individual person that's doing crypto mining within our service. And initially, that's what we were doing. And then we had to spin up a team to do that because then, then of course, the problem got worse. Mm. (laughs) When, you know, after a while, you realize we're not fixing the problem. We just keep hiring more people to triage or mitigate this problem quicker. So then what we did was we hired a couple experts in machine learning and devised a tool, if you will, or a sort of like automate, you know, security automation or scripted automation to detect and block this behavior in the short term. So that's what we did in the short term to mitigate the crypto mining activity. And in the long term, then we simply fixed the service itself, prevented that type of activity from occurring on the service itself. And so that's how we attacked the behavior versus constantly trying to mitigate and kick off bad actors off the platform. I mean, it's an interesting approach. I mean, what it reminds me of, uh, and, and I suppose this is an imperfect analogy, but suppose if you have you have an issue with mice in your break room, uh, you can set out mouse traps, uh, but perhaps the, the real issue is that your employees aren't cleaning up after themselves. You know, they're leaving crumbs and, and food, and and uh, until you tackle that, uh, you can put out all the mouse traps in the world. You're still going to have trouble with mice. I think it's a great analogy. That is exactly what we're trying to do. And I also want to point out that it doesn't have to be malicious activity from the outside, although that's probably what you would think of first, right? Hmm. Mice are nuisances, right? So yes, we did have nuisances within our service. We did have a nuisance from external forces interacting with our service, trying to exploit our platform, trying to compromise our services or customers. But it could also be internal behaviors that we're looking at, right? It could be, it doesn't always have to be malicious. It could be unintentional bad behavior that originates from employees, from the way we build services to the way that we code the, the platform or the, the, the application itself. Can you understand the impulse from the security team to want to go after these things, to, to want to you know, put a name on it and, and block those bad actors specifically? Absolutely. And even to some degree, we still do a little bit of both. I I don't I I wouldn't say that we absolutely just, you know, some person is is attacking our our service and we then spin up a three month project on how to combat that behavior. I, I wouldn't say that that is the only thing that we do. We, of course, attempt to mitigate the activity from, you know, initially 
to prevent further compromise, further damage, further whatever, right? Whatever the situation is. But then, of course, what we're looking at is the behavior itself. So then we have grown an internal CERT team, if you will, or a security incident response team. That team has almost doubled in size, and they now have a reactive arm and a proactive arm. So the reactive arm is the arm that is 24 by 7, gives us real-time coverage across the globe, and can respond to these incidents immediately. And then now we have this proactive team that's involved with analysis, like threat analytics, data analysis, trying to identify abnormal behavior, trying to get to the root causes of the events that we've uncovered or we've investigated. They're doing research, they're doing learning, uh, they're doing security automation, and we're doing a lot of different things on the platform to then prevent the behavior from being repeated. Because as you know, these types of tactics are learned by many, not just few. From a team point of view, the folks who are on your security team, is is this approach more gratifying for them? Do do, do they have a a more complete picture of of what they're up against? It's worked out really well. It's helped with team morale. It's helped with team satisfaction. It gives them a challenge. It gives them opportunities for growth. And and even org behavior characteristics aside, right? Let's let's just put that aside for just a second. And (laughs) the team itself is finding that they're not seeing the same incidents over and over again. And I've been parts of organizations and and initially here, the teams and incident response engineers, they do get exhausted, right? It is a trying experience seeing the same thing over and over and over again and combating the same problems over and over again and then making requests for these issues to be fixed and, and the product teams or the engineering teams are you know, deprioritizing that, or we'll get to that in in Q4 of next year, right? You know, nine Mm -hmm. months away. And it's really challenging. We not only have these teams that they can immediately work to mitigate incidents and kind of get the thrill and the adrenaline rush of working on, you know, current events, but then they also have the opportunity to research different parts of what you might call like the security domain, right? The security realm. They can look at the application security. They can look at the infrastructure security. They can look at containers. They can start challenging themselves and growing not only in their space and in their profession, but also helping the organization combat these problems over the long long haul. What sort of advice do you have for other organizations who, who might be looking at following in your footsteps here? Based on the things that you've learned evolving your own approach to this, any tips for people who may want to adopt a, a a similar approach? I do. So a lot of organizations run tend to run lean. And that's certainly understandable, even at times like now, where um, hiring might be frozen, or maybe even some teams have been reduced in size. And what I can say is, I know it's a daunting task. I know it could be a little frightening at first, but you do need to dedicate and allocate some time to being proactive versus reactive. And if that means that taking care of immediate events might take a little bit longer, or it might be a little more you may, you may seem like you're losing ground in the beginning. Dedicating that time is going to win the battle in the long term, right? That spending that time to proactively address the behaviors, the risks, the threats, looking into threat analytics, looking into, you know, the abnormal behavior that you've identified through uh, a seam or through a data analytics team or something like that. Doing that is going to reduce these events over time. It's going to allow you to run a leader team more efficiently and more effectively and get ahead of this game. Joe, what do you think? Dave, 
Great interview. Blocking IP addresses and stopping up specific activity is a never-ending game of whack-a-mole. To mm. use a phrase that you like to use a lot. I like that. <laughs> great analogy. So looking at behavior may be a better way to automate the process, right? And right. hiring more people to control a growing problem is just not scalable. For example, the example that Jonathan cites in the crypto mining problem they were having at GitLab, that's kind of a problem of threat modeling. They didn't consider the threat when they built the service. However, somebody found out that you could mine cryptocurrency and they did it. Then they told other people and the problem grew. The reason this happens is because threat modeling is hard, mm-hmm. right? You, yeah. you have to, you really have to think of everything that a bad actor can do and mitigate it beforehand. And no matter right. how good you do it, if you do it, you've missed something. I guarantee mm-hmm. you've missed something. The malicious actors are, are very creative and they're going to see something different than what you saw. And there's just so many more of them. Right, exactly. So they, they built this uh, DevOps and DevSecOps tools that they just didn't consider Crypto mining is a threat, but Mm -hmm. it was. So back to the behavior, it looks like they're having success by analyzing behavior as opposed to trying to stop individuals at the firewall or at a user account level. And the impact has been really positive on their team. So instead of going after these recurring problems over and over again, they're addressing new and interesting problems, and they're going out and learning more about the security realm, as Jonathan calls it, and that's why they got into security in the first place, right? They hope that they're going to be doing interesting stuff, fighting the bad guys, and they get to do the new stuff on a more frequent basis, Then they don't just have to sit there clicking the same button over and over again, which will drive you mad. Right. So this approach, even beyond the benefits of increasing, of being more effective against the security issues that you're you're facing, uh, it's better for your team. Yeah. You have, people have more job satisfaction, uh, and uh, yeah, they're they're more fulfilled by the work they're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, our thanks to Jonathan Hunt from GitLab for joining us. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. And, of course, we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 